Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife and our cardiac surgery crash course. The cardiac OR can be a daunting place for any medical student or resident who finds themselves on a cardiac surgery rotation. But have no fear, the Cardiac Surgery Crash Course is a short series focused on high-yield topics to help introduce students and residents to cardiac surgery prior to or during a cardiac surgery rotation. My name is Jessica Millar. And I'm Aaron Williams, a cardiac surgery fellow at Duke. And we'll be your host for today's episode. We hope you find our series useful. And if you have any suggestions or requests, please feel free to reach out to us by email, which you can find in the show notes for this episode. All right. So listen up. Today's topic will be ICU hemodynamics. So we're going to break down all the lines, catheters, monitors, numbers that can seem often overwhelming to medical students and junior residents when seeing or caring for patients in a cardiac ICU. Oh, yeah. All of those numbers can definitely cease overwhelming. There's just so many things you have to pay attention to when it comes to post-op cardiac surgery patients in the ICU. So one way to help keep everything organized and something we'll come back to are the key principles of basic post-cardiac surgery ICU care. All right, so Jess, what do you think those principles are? I think the key principles to post-cardiac surgery ICU care are hemodynamic monitoring, adequate volume therapy, inotropic support, and maintaining sufficient tissue perfusion. Yep, exactly. So we want to support the heart post-surgery by helping enhance its contractility. We want to normalize preload. We got to optimize that afterload. And we want to ensure that we have adequate monitoring as we make all these changes. Okay. So let's say you're a junior resident rotating through the cardiac ICU. You just got report that a new post-op cardiac surgery patient is on their way to the ICU. Aaron, what are you thinking about as you're getting ready to take care of this patient? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, first thing you want to know is what happened in the OR? So intraoperative events can definitely play a huge role in how your patients will fare post-op in the ICU. So you especially want to know about temperature, adequate rewarming, how long they were on bypass, um, how long was the cross-clamp time, how was the heart function before and after surgery, and, and ultimately how was bleeding as well. No matter what, most patients are going to come out of the OR with reduced myocardial contractility and compliance. And so those first six to eight hours post-op can be a significantly dynamic period, which will just require a lot of care and attention. Yep. Yep. All right, Jess. So your patient just rolled in the ICU and the nurses are starting to get all the monitors hooked up. So let's just talk a little bit about hemodynamic monitoring in the post-cardiac surgery patient. What type of monitors are you going to want for your patient? Basic monitoring for post-op cardiac surgery ICU patients should include an ECG or telemetry, pulse oximetry, and some type of invasive blood pressure monitoring, usually an A-line. Most patients will also have a central line, and this can help you monitor central venous pressure or CVP. And they may also have a pulmonary artery catheter, which can give you a lot of extra information about the heart's function. Lastly, temperature and fluid balance, so your total ins and outs, should be considered as part of your monitoring, and they're super important to keep track of in the immediate post-op period. Absolutely. And it's important to note that your A-line and your central line will also allow you to perform arterial and venous blood gas centrally, which are definitely important tools um, for help managing these patients. All right, Jess, now you lamed a lot of different monitors, and probably the most confusing is this thing called the pulmonary artery catheter or a SWAN-GANS catheter. 
So first, does everyone need a swan? No. And there's some institutional variation in this, but a swan is definitely not necessary in patients that are otherwise considered to be low perioperative risk. Patients, though, who should get a swan catheter include high-risk patients, so say an EF less than 40% before surgery, patients that already have pulmonary hypertension, or any of those that are kind of undergoing valve procedures. Yeah, so let's say our patient just rolled in the ICU and has a swan. What does a swan actually help measure? So a swan can give you a ton of information. Probably the one, though, that the cardiac surgeons are going to care about the most is the cardiac index, and that's based on your cardiac output. Yeah, and just as a review, remember, your cardiac output is your heart rate multiplied by your stroke volume, while your cardiac index is just your cardiac output divided by your body surface area. So Jess, what's a normal cardiac index? So cardiac index goals will vary a little bit based on your patient population. So for example, in a non-cardiac surgery patient, a good cardiac index is anywhere from two and a half to four liters per minute per meter squared. However, the goal for most of our post-op cardiac patients is going to be anything greater than two. Yeah. So there is significant risk for systemic hypoperfusion as your index decreases below two. So that's why you definitely want to try to keep it above two if at all possible. Now. Aaron, most of these are just numbers that are going to randomly appear on a screen. How does the catheter actually measure your cardiac output and your cardiac index? (laughs) This is a great question. Uh, I had to look this up before this podcast. So to measure cardiac output and cardiac index, most PA catheters have a metal filament, which sits in the RV, the right ventricle. And so this filament will actually intermittently heat up and thereby heating the blood that passes by. And any change in temperature detected by this thermistor near the tip catheter and the time from the filament heating to the time that the heat is detected will help determine your cardiac output and your cardiac index. Now, Jess, what do we need to be mindful of if our index is low? So if our cardiac index is low, then we may need to optimize the patient's volume status, their heart rate, or their heart rhythm to help optimize our cardiac index. And we can use inotropic and vasopressor support to do this. Exactly. And, you know, we will want to address these before signs of hypoperfusion, such as lower urine output, modeling, acidosis develop. So what if, despite our best critical care efforts with, you know, standard medical management, inotropes, other medications, the index remains low and we're still worried about the body not getting fully perfused? Yeah, if the cardiac index remains low, we do have some extra options such as intraaortic balloon pumps or cardiac assist devices such as ECMO or ventricular assist devices to help our patients. Now, these get a little bit outside the scope of this episode, so we'll save them for another episode. All right. So we've talked about the SWAN or the PA catheter being great for measuring index. What else does it tell us? Well, since swan catheters sit in the pulmonary artery, they can also tell us a lot about pulmonary artery pressures. So this is extremely important to monitor as increased pulmonary artery pressure can mean increased work for the right heart. And so a good way to remember what a normal pulmonary artery pressure would be is a saying quarter over dime or 25 over 10. All right, Jess, so what else can it tell us? So most swan catheters will also have a little balloon on the end that you can inflate, and that will help you obtain a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. Now, this isn't done too often because it does occlude blood flow, but it can help us determine left atrial pressure. And so it's used as kind of a surrogate marker as well for left ventricular function. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely old school, uh, but it does have that surrogate thing. A lot of times in the unit, you may just put an echo probe and look yourself, but you totally got it. Now, if we need to obtain a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, we can inflate the balloon on the swan and let it sit for three to five seconds, you know, allow equilibration of the blood from the LA. And a good goal would be about four to 12 millimeters of mercury. So quick fire right here. What does it mean if our pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is too low? It likely means the patient is hypovolemic. And if it's too high? Then you would be worried about heart dysfunction. All right. All right. So last few numbers that our swan will help us with. I'll help you out. One of them is central venous pressure or CBP. How does this help us out? Central venous pressure tells us a lot about the patient's volume status and their right-sided heart function. Most surgeons are probably used to a goal of about one to eight millimeters per mercury, but that's mainly for non-cardiac surgery patients. Given their unique physiology, a good goal for central venous pressure for a cardiac surgery patient will be somewhere between eight to 12. All right, Aaron, do you want to talk about the last big number of our swan catheter? Yeah, let's knock this out here. It's your SVO2 or your mixed venous oxygen saturation. So this is a measure of the oxygen content in the venous blood in your right heart. And it is dependent on your oxygen supply as well as your oxygen consumption. So a reduced SVO2 can indicate either a high oxygen consumption, such as a state like sepsis, or poor oxygen supply, such as a decreased cardiac output. Now, in a post-ep cardiac patient, a low SVO2 is often due to poor cardiac output or index. And we'll define low as anything less than 65%. Now, you can obtain this number either by sending blood that you withdraw right off of your central line, although in some newer lines, you can also obtain this through fiber optic light. Yeah, so it's it's pretty crazy how much this one line can give you. Now, thankfully, the rest of our monitors are a little bit easier here. All right, Jess, so after hooking up your swan, now you also have your patient's telemetry monitor hooked up. What should we be paying attention to here? Just like for any other patient on telemetry, we want to pay attention to their rate and their rhythm. Definitely. So arrhythmias are super common after cardiac surgery and can contribute to pretty significant cardiac dysfunction at times. And so they may be rate or rhythm related, and they can include atrial fibrillation or AFib, sinus tach or tachycardia, bradycardia, ventricular arrhythmias, and and pretty much all degrees of heart block. Um, But most of these are hopefully just temporary. Something else you might see on your patient's telemetry strip are pacing spikes. And if you haven't seen them before, go ahead and pause this and do a quick Google search. Most surgeons will place epicardial, ventricular, and sometimes atrial pacing wires during surgery, and that's just to help support the heart postoperatively while it recovers. These pacing wires also allow us to control the patient's heart rate, and in some cases, increasing the heart rate can help us augment the patient's blood pressure and cardiac index postoperatively. Yeah. So being able to pace a patient postoperatively is super important. And bonus here, when rounding on patients in the ICU, the staff or your fellows, or your residents are going to want to know, is the patient still being paced? If so, what's the heart rate and what's their underlying rhythm? And if you have no idea how to do this, just talk to one of the bedside nurses in the ICU. They will totally show you how it's done. All right, Jess. So what can we do if we notice an arrhythmia post-op? Yeah, you can try some basic things like IV magnesium or potassium just to make sure that the arrhythmia isn't due to any electrolyte imbalances. But oftentimes you'll wind up using other medications such as amiodarone, and those can come as either a bolus or a drip. Yeah, so what about beta blockers? 
Uh, now, many patients have indications for beta blockers after surgery. However, we usually don't start these until about one to a few days after surgery. So you generally should try to avoid beta blockade in the immediate post-op period. Yeah, 100%. We usually wait, you know, a, a day to a couple of days for sure. And it's also worth highlighting, you know, you really should avoid beta blockers to treat immediate sinus tack in the post-op period. A little bit of tachycardia is not not too, too bad. Uh, it's usually well tolerated, but just, you know, think of it, it's the body's own way of helping to increase the cardiac output of the index. And often this gets better. All right. There's one last thing that we should be looking at here on a telemonitor. Jess, what do you think it is? Myocardial ischemia. And so if you start to see T wave inversions or ST segment changes, you need to start thinking about things such as a new ischemic lesion, or especially if your patient just had a coronary artery bypass graft, a new occlusion of that graft. Yeah, so that's that's a great point that we should discuss here. So there's some recent data that's shown that some patients can actually have sustained ST changes after cabbage. So to differentiate, it's definitely important to talk to the patient about if they're having any clinical symptoms or signs of ischemic chest pain. That's something that you know you should do as a clinician. If they aren't, we usually let this ride. But if they are, definitely need an EKG and likely a heart cath. And so Jess, you're totally spot on. We need to always think about, you know, myocardial ischemia in the back of our heads. I've encountered this a couple of times in my training, and it's definitely something to to keep at the forefront of your brain here. All right. So there's a few more monitors that we use in post-op cardiac patients. Jess, want to help finish this off? So we've talked about pulmonary artery catheters and telemetry monitors. Additionally, all post-op cardiac surgery patients should have a pulse oximeter and an A-line for invasive blood pressure monitoring. Now, blood pressure goals for most cardiac surgery patients will be a MAP greater than 65, and that blood pressure can be the most dynamic physiologic variable during the first postoperative hour, and that's just because it's influenced by a lot of different factors like preload, ventricular compliance, myocardial contractility, heart rate, rhythm, all those things. Yeah. And and we'll get into the ways to help augment all these factors and blood pressure in a little bit. So what else does this patient need? A Foley catheter. And this is super helpful for monitoring urine output as that can serve as a surrogate marker for end organ perfusion. Most patients should make greater than half a cc per kilo per hour of urine. And the Foley can also help monitor other things such as temperature, which is a very important variable as temperature dysregulation post-op can cause coagulation dysfunction. Yeah. And there's there's a little bit of nuance here with urine output with, you know, if you're hypovolemic versus hypervolemic, and sometimes we have to make tough decisions about give the patient fluid or give them Lasix. And that's a little bit more nuanced. And um, you guys will learn that as time goes on. All right. So just to sum everything up that we've talked about, let's say our patient just arrived in the ICU and has a low index. What might we see on these monitors that help us determine if the index is actually low? You might see that decrease in the SVO2. So again, something usually less than 65, 60%. You might see a decreased MAP on your A-line. So again, a MAP less than 65%. And you might see decreased urine output from your Foley. So again, less than that half cc per kilo per hour. Yep. So speaking of Foley's, let's uh, move on to volume management here in our post-op cardiac patient. Cardiac surgery patients, as we mentioned, are extremely fluid sensitive. So finding the right balance between you know, keeping the, you know, them being dry or fluid overload is, is very critical. So Jess, if we, you know, start a patient on IV fluids, how are we going to affect their preload or their afterload? So IV fluids are going to help increase the preload. 
Yeah, exactly. So IV fluids, it'll directly affect your preload. But just remember, too much fluid will also affect contractility. Obviously, our good old Frank Starling curve here. And too much fluid can cause hemodilution, dilution of coagulopathy. So finding the right amount of fluid to optimize your preload without the other consequences can be a little bit challenging. Uh, but obviously, these patients do require a lot of resuscitation post-op. So it's not uncommon for them to need two to four liters overnight for the first night. All right, Jess, now let's say our patient's blood pressure is low and our urine output is starting to taper off. You want to give a fluid challenge to see if it'll help. What fluid and how much would you give? So in these patients, I would definitely start with something small. So say a 250 to 500 cc fluid bolus and see how they respond to that. But whether or not you give crystalloid or colloid, that will largely just depend on your institution. Just know that there's been studies that have looked at both crystalloid and colloid resuscitation in cardiac surgery, and really they've found no difference. One thing you should try to avoid though is blood. Sometimes you can't avoid it. And if your patient is anemic and needs blood, you should totally give it. But there have been many studies examining the negative effects of blood transfusions in post-operative cardiac patients. So you want to try to avoid it if you can, but if they need it, they need it. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the infamous inotropic agents. Yes. Most students and residents will be familiar with pressors, but what exactly will inotropes help us with? Inotropic agents will help improve the contractility of the heart. Remember, inotropy helps your heart muscle contract with more power, while chronotropy will influence the heart rate. Yeah, and it's important to understand that each agent's cardiovascular actions and mechanisms, because honestly, they will either have a benefit or hurt your patient, depending on the physiologic situation. All right, so let's start out with dobutamine. Jess, what is the mechanism of action and physiologic response? So dobutamine has both inotropic and chronotropic effects, depending on the dose, but it's mainly an inotropic agent that acts on beta-1 receptors. And just as a refresher, beta-1 receptors are primarily on your heart, and I remember it because you only have one heart, whereas beta-2 receptors are primarily on your lungs and in your airway, and beta-2, you have two lungs. So because of dobutamine's action on beta-1 receptors, it will help increase your contractility and your stroke volume, which will help increase our cardiac index. You have to be careful, though, because all that beta-1 stimulation can also cause cardiac arrhythmias. All right, Aaron, so throwing it back at you, what can you tell us about our next inotropic agent, epinephrine? Oh, the back and forth here. Okay. So epinephrine um, has both beta and alpha receptor effects, and that uh, it's just really depending on the dose. So when we use it in small doses, it has a greater affinity for beta receptors. Um, and similar to dobutamine, epinephrine's effect on the beta receptors increase contractility, and it also increases the heart rate. In higher doses, where it's you know high enough to have an alpha effect, it also causes vasoconstriction. And then once again, you got to be careful with epinephrine because it can induce arrhythmias. It can cause a pretty profound hyperglycemia. And actually, really high doses can cause too much vasoconstriction and cause peripheral ischemia. All right, so obviously back at you here, we're going to talk about another inotrope that you'll commonly see in the unit, uh, and that's milrinone. What do you know, Jess? Milrinone is unique, and that's because it doesn't act on beta or alpha receptors, but instead it is a PDE3 inhibitor. And I'm actually pretty sure I had a step question on this. It's useful because it increases your myocardial contractility and even improves myocardial relaxation, which helps to optimize your stroke volume and, as a result, improves your cardiac index. 
It also has arterial and venous vasodilatory effects, so it helps to decrease your afterload. And this combination of improved contractility and decreased afterload results in actually only a small increase in the overall workload of the heart and only has minimal changes in your myocardial oxygen consumption. All right. So although this decrease in afterload can be awesome for the heart, you got to be careful using milrinone um, with its vasodilatory effects because it can also cause hypotension and suggest there's one big contraindication to the use of milrinone. What do you think that is? I think it's renal failure. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely want to avoid milrinone in patients with renal failure as it is obviously renally excreted. All right. So I think it's my turn. So I'll jump to our next anotropic agent, isoproteranol. You may not see this one used a lot. To be honest, I never have. This is just like a pimp question, but you know we got to talk about it since we're here. It is both a beta-1, beta-2 receptor agonist. The beta-1 effects increase contractility and increase heart rate. And then you might see some of the beta-2 effects manifest as relaxation of the bronchial GI, uterine smooth muscles, as well as peripheral vasodilation. All right, Jess, last one here. Take us home with dopamine. All right. So dopamine acts on many receptors in a dose-dependent manner. And unfortunately, it is important to remember what receptors it acts on in what order, as this is a very common test question. So at low doses, dopamine preferentially stimulates D1 and D2 receptors in the renal vasculature. So that helps promote renal blood flow. At intermediate doses, it will stimulate beta-1 receptors and result in increased contractility and increased heart rate, very similar to all of the other one beta inotropic agents we've talked about. And then lastly, at high doses, dopamine will stimulate alpha receptors and cause vasoconstriction. Now, this can be problematic as increased vasoconstriction will increase the afterload of the heart and as a result, increases the workload of the heart. And the way to sort of remember this order or the way I remember is that dopamine's actions start at the D receptors and then works its way backwards through the alphabet, through beta and then alpha. Yeah. So I'll say that clinically, the most common ionotropes I use in the unit are probably epinephrine and dopamine. I'll say if your patient's got the pressure to tolerate using milrinone, it's a great jug. But again, overall, the stuff is kind of very institution specific. All right. So that's it for ionotropes feel free to pause, go back, play that through a few times. Um, you're going to get lots of pimp questions about this. Try to get them down, but you're definitely going to need to see them uh, know these pretty well to help take care of your patients. Definitely. You're going to see them a ton. And something which I found very helpful was I made a small reference card that had each of these agents and their main mechanisms of action and their effects on contractility, heart rate, and afterload. And I put this reference card behind my hospital ID. So I always had it with me when I was running the cardiac ICU. The EM Crit Project also has a great reference card, which you can print out, and we'll make sure that the link is in the show notes for you guys to reference. Yeah, those are definitely good ideas there. All right, so earlier we mentioned that there's a difference between ionotropic agents and pressors. So ionotropes, obviously, a great way to support the heart as it recovers from surgery, but we can also still use pressors, uh, vasopressors, to help augment blood pressure and ensure adequate tissue perfusion. So most of these agents will sound familiar to our listeners probably heard this in other realms of medicine. So we'll briefly touch on each one of these and how they actually help our cardiac surgery patients as well. Yeah. And it's really important to note too, that many post-op cardiac surgery patients will have profound vasodilation that can actually last a few hours to even a few days after surgery. So you'll often find these patients needing both inotropic and vasopressor support in the immediate post-op period. All right, Jess. All right. So let's say our patient just rolled over the ICU. 
they've got an adequate cardiac index, but their MAP is less than 60. In addition to optimizing all the other factors we talked about, the preload, the heart rate, the rhythm, what presser can we start to help out this patient? Probably the one you'll see the most often is norepinephrine. Remember, norepinephrine is similar to epinephrine in that it has both alpha-1 and beta-1 activity, but it has way more alpha-1 activity than epinephrine. So it will cause much more vasoconstriction, which will help increase your blood pressure. Yeah. And you got to be careful when using these agents that cause vasoconstriction because it also can affect the afterload and workload of the heart. And so once again, it's a tricky balance to try and optimize peripheral resistance to maintain that perfusion making sure you haven't affected the heart too much, essentially. All right. So what's another presser that we can use? Another one, one of my favorites is vasopressin. Now, vasopressin acts primarily on the V1 receptors, and that's what causes vasoconstriction. It also has some V2 effects on the kidney, but V2 stimulation is really more of a role for desmopressin or DDAVP and doesn't really have as much of an effect with vasopressin. This I've seen on steps. So one way to remember this is V1 receptors are in the arteries. And so you can think of a long, smooth artery making the number one, while V2 receptors are in the kidney. And that's because, again, you have two kidneys. Yeah. So another presser you may hear of, but you won't see often is phenylephrine. Uh, It's a weak presser, to be honest. But it is worth knowing. Uh, It's a pure alpha-1 agonist, and it causes significant vasoconstriction. uh, And this increases systemic vascular resistance and can cause a profound increase in afterload and workload of the heart, but can also cause reflex bradycardia. There's one more agent. It's not really a presser, but it can help in certain select situations of vasoplegia. Jess, what do you, what do you think? I'm going to say methylene blue. Perfect. All right. So some cardiac surgery patients will have this profound vasoplegia, which will manifest as hypotension despite a normal or even increased cardiac output. A lot of times this is the older patient or a a long case or a very complex case. And this is really thought to be due to overproduction of nitric oxide, which is obviously a potent vasodilator. And so methylene blue can help treat vasoplegia by decreasing nitric oxide production. Aaron, I know this isn't super common, but what if a patient comes to the ICU postoperatively and they are hypertensive. You know, we've talked about all this extra afterload can mean a lot of extra work for the heart. So in the rare instance, how do we treat these patients? Yeah, these are great questions. I love this because I get much more worried about hypotension. So I'd rather have hypertension. It's not super common in cardiac surgery patients, but it can happen. You're right. And we will want to decrease all that afterload and workload for the heart. Additionally, kind of early in the post-op period, a hypertensive patient Obviously, it can increase the risk of bleeding. Think about just, you know, the pressure in the pipes. You can just see that chest tube output increase before your eyes. But you definitely want to use things like clavidipine or nitroprusside or IV nitroglycerin um, to help slowly decrease that blood pressure for you. Again, you know, you should avoid beta blockers too, too early in the post-op course because they can cause cardiac depression, although you want to get those restarted later. One last thing that I think is really important to mention is your inotropic agents and your pressors are often used in conjunction with each other. And this is really to kind of help offset a lot of those side effects we talked about. So for example, we mentioned that milrinone can cause hypotension. So if you're starting milrinone, you may want to consider also starting something like norepinephrine just to help offset any hypotension the milrinone might cause. Yeah. So you really got to be mindful of, of how all these things can interact and you know play a role together. So with that in mind, let's do Pressors, quick fire. Jess, what pressors can you use in a patient with low blood pressure, low cardiac index? 
One option would be epinephrine, or you could also use dopamine to help with your cardiac index and combine that with norepinephrine or vasopressin to help with your blood pressure. All right. What about low heart rate and low cardiac index? So here you could try adjusting the pacing rate on your pacer to help increase your heart rate. And that might in and of itself just help your cardiac index. Or you could also use epinephrine or dobutamine, both of which will help increase your cardiac index and also have effects on your heart rate. Yep, exactly. All right. What about low blood pressure, but a normal cardiac index? So for this, you can just use norepinephrine or vasopressin just to treat the hypotension. Vasopressin, your favorite. Um, (laughs) And then last one, low heart rate, but normal cardiac index. Yeah, so this one's tricky, but as long as there's no evidence of hypoperfusion and they have a normal cardiac index, you can really just let that low heart rate ride and observe them. Or if it's really freaking out, you can increase the rate on their pacer. All right, Jess. So what are some other surrogates that we can use to monitor the hemodynamics of our patients? Nice. Yeah. Something that's become super, super common over the past several years are bedside TTEs or echoes. And that's just because it's such a quick and easy tool to very quickly evaluate the patient's cardiac function and see if there's any cardiac dysfunction that might be contributing to the hemodynamic stability you're seeing in them. And what's probably considered to be the most underrated, old school, and maybe most important tool of them all? Yeah, you'll never go wrong, especially like on an oral board if you say you want to do a thorough physical exam. Yeah, you got to go see the patient, do a physical exam every time, gets you all the points. All right, you really cannot underestimate the utility of a good physical exam. Small things like delayed capillary refill or cool extremities can definitely be a key part of your overall assessment. And it may actually give you clues to poor perfusion before any of your monitors change or your lab values change. So now in this episode, we've touched on the basics of hemodynamics. And of course, these changes you got to keep in mind can be due to a number of uh, post-op complications, things like cardiac tamponade, MI, tension pneumo, hemothorax, a graft going down, or an emboli. And obviously, there's a lot. But you can look out for a continuation of these complications in this series in 2023. Uh, We'll address how to work up and manage all of these common complications. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this episode. We hope it was a helpful introduction to the ICU hemodynamics of a post-op cardiac surgery patient. And I hope all those numbers on the monitors just make a little bit more sense now. Like Aaron said, be sure to look out for future episodes in our cardiac surgery crash course series. All right. Should we do it? Let's do it. You got it. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.